Section 2 of Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough, by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 1. Churchill's Early Years, Part 2. Louis XIV continued the war for some years. In 1675, the French suffered a severe loss in the death of Turenne, who was killed by a chance ball whilst surveying the enemy's position at Sasbach in Alsace. A general peace was finally concluded at Nijmegen in 1678, from which France reaped all the advantages. In England, Charles II had excited such suspicion amongst the Protestants that nothing would gratify them but a firm alliance with Holland. William of Orange came over to visit his uncles in 1677, and a marriage was concluded between him and Mary, the eldest daughter of James, Duke of York. This marriage roused Louis XIV's wrath, and Charles had great difficulty in pacifying him and persuading him that this new alliance meant nothing, but was only intended to keep Parliament quiet. Charles finally acted as mediator at the Peace of Nijmegen, which could only be regarded as a temporary measure, for the ambition of Louis XIV was still unchecked, and his schemes were as dangerous as ever to the peace of Europe. Though Churchill was with the army again after the death of Turenne, he seems during the campaign to have occasionally returned to England, and to have been in attendance on the Duke of York, who successively appointed him a gentleman of his bedchamber and his master of the robes. The licentiousness and unbridled profligacy of the court of Charles II is well known. Fortunately, Churchill was saved from being too deeply entangled in its dissipations by his pure and faithful love for Sarah Jennings, one of the ladies of the Duchess of York's court. Sarah was the daughter of a Mr. Jennings who had been distinguished for his devotion to the cause of the Stuarts. After the Restoration, he had found no difficulty in getting places at court for his two daughters. Frances, the elder, was one of the loveliest women of the day. She married first Sir James Hamilton, and afterwards, in 1667, Richard Talbot, Earl of Tyrconnell, an Irishman of infamous character, ready to do anything to gain money and power. Sarah, the younger sister, came to court at the age of twelve and grew up as the companion of the Princess Anne, the Duke of York's second daughter. She lacked the regular beauty of her sister, but her fine figure, expressive features, and beautiful hair won for her a crowd of admirers. Churchill lost his heart to her when she was only sixteen, and she soon singled him out for special favor. They were both of them singularly ambitious of power and influence. Sarah pined to be in a position where she might command. Churchill deeply felt his penniless condition and desired wealth as well as power. It would have seemed that both were unlikely persons to marry for love, but in this case passion was stronger than ambition, and triumphed over the objections of their parents and all other obstacles to their union. Churchill's parents suggested to him another bride who, though plain, had a large fortune, and the report of his probable marriage brought him bitter reproaches for inconstancy from Sarah Jennings. 
Her petulant temper did not help to make the days of courtship pass very smoothly for Churchill. His letters to her breathed nothing but the deep devotion of a warm and sensitive heart, which was pained by her slightest reproach, and could not rest under the sense of her displeasure. She, on the contrary, delighted to show her power over him. She would make him miserable by her haughtiness, in order that the least sign of returning favor might win from him expressions of the most passionate gratitude. But at the bottom her affection was as sincere as his, and early in 1678 they were privately married in the presence of the Duchess of York. Marriage only deepened their affection, and in that dissolute age they formed an example, unhappily only too rare amongst the higher classes, of a perfect union which, though ruffled occasionally by Sarah's overbearing temper, was never marred by jealousy or mistrust. About the time of his marriage, Colonel Churchill obtained a regiment of foot. During the first years of his married life, he had no settled home and was repeatedly separated from his wife. He was sent in 1678 on a mission to the Prince of Orange. At the time when Charles II, to gain the favor of Parliament, affected a desire to renew the Triple Alliance. From Breda, he writes to his wife, I would be glad you should hear from me by every post. I would lose no time, for I do with all my heart and soul long to be with you, you being dearer to me than my own life. Toward the end of the year, the alliance of Charles II with the Prince of Orange compelled him to send some troops to the Dutch army to help against the French, and Churchill accompanied them to take the command of a brigade. But he had hardly reached the continent when the Treaty of Nijmegen was concluded, and he was able to come back to his wife. James, Duke of York, had for some time publicly declared himself a Roman Catholic, in the present temper of the nation, which was alarmed at the Catholic tendencies of the king, this made him very unpopular. The House of Commons, which met in 1679, even hinted that the only way to secure the safety of the religion and liberties of the country was to exclude the Duke of York from the throne. Charles II had to bid his brother retire to The Hague in March 1679, that the people might not be irritated by his presence at court. Colonel Churchill and his wife both went with the Duke and Duchess of York. Toward the end of the year, the Duke seized the pretext of a slight illness of Charles II to pay a visit to London with Churchill. Whilst the Duke of York stayed in London, Churchill was sent on a mission to Paris, for Charles II, in spite of his apparent approaches to the Prince of Orange, was really as closely in league with France as ever, and in the present temper of the nation stood in pressing need of Louis XIV's help. The Duke could not get the permission of the King to return to London, but was allowed to remove from The Hague to Scotland, where the chief administration was put into his hands. Hither Churchill accompanied him in 1679 and was joined in 1680 by his wife, who came to Scotland in attendance on the Duchess of York. Meanwhile, affairs in England grew more and more stormy. The first Parliament of 1679 had been dissolved and a new one summoned, in which Charles hoped to find a more submissive spirit. But he was disappointed. The cry for the exclusion of the Duke of York from the throne grew louder than ever. The people hoped that their favorite, 
the Duke of Monmouth, Charles II's natural son, might succeed his father, and an attempt was made to prove that Charles had been secretly married to Monmouth's mother. The exclusion bill was brought into the House of Commons in October 1680, and was passed by a great majority. It was finally thrown out by the House of Lords, chiefly owing to the brilliant eloquence of Viscount Halifax, the most accomplished statesman of the day. It was thought wise that the Duke of York should still for a while stay away from court, and Colonel Churchill remained with him in Scotland. Churchill stood high in the Duke's confidence, and was several times sent by him on secret missions to Charles II, whom the Duke exhorted not to become a slave to his Parliament, but to free himself by a still closer alliance with France. The Duke also anxiously begged to be allowed to return to court. Part of the time that Churchill was in Scotland, his wife had to stay in London, where, on the 19th July, 1681, she gave birth to their first child, a daughter, Henrietta. The father shows in his letters a tender interest in his child and writes, I hope all the red spots of our child will be gone against I see her, and her nose straight, so that I may fancy it to be like the mother, for as she has your colored hair, I would have her be like you in all things else. His affection for his children seems to have been very tender even from their earliest years. Later on, after the birth of Anne, his second daughter, he writes to his wife, You cannot imagine how I am pleased with the children. For having nobody but their maid, they are so fond of me that when I am at home, they will be always with me, kissing and hugging me. Their heats are quite gone, so that against you come home, they will be in beauty. Mrs. pulling me by the arm, that she may write to her dear mamma, so that I shall say no more, only beg that you will love me always as well as I love you, and then we cannot but be happy. He adds a postscript for his little girl. I kiss your hands, my dear mamma, Harriet. At last, in 1682, the Duke of York was allowed to return to court. Since the time that the Commons passed the Exclusion Bill with a large majority, a reaction had set in, and the King and his government had been able to triumph over their opponents. It was during the struggle about the Exclusion Bill that the names afterwards so familiar in the history of English politics, Whig and Tory, first came into use. Tory was the name given to a number of wild Irish rebels who as outlaws had taken refuge in the bogs in the north of Ireland. The Duke of York was supposed secretly to protect these rebels, and so the party who supported the exclusion bill gave its opponents the nickname of Tory. In giving them this name they seemed to credit those who had put themselves forward as champions of the prerogative and hereditary right with secret leanings toward Catholicism. The Tories revenged themselves by calling their opponents Whigs, from the Whigamores, by which name a body of fanatical Scottish covenanters were commonly known in the lowlands of Scotland. The rage of party faction was very violent in England, and Louis XIV did all he could to foment it. He did not wish the king and his parliament to be on good terms, for then Charles II would be able to take up an independent position and free himself from his disgraceful position of dependence. Louis XIV 
therefore at the same time exhorted Charles II not to give way to Parliament, and by means of his ambassador secretly bade the Whigs stand firmly to their opposition, promising that he would protect them. Meanwhile, the violence of the Whigs had terrified the more moderate people, and they were eager to show their devotion to the king. Charles II found himself in a position to do without Parliament for a while, for he stood in no pressing need of money, and besides could draw upon help from Louis XIV. As the law then stood, he need not summon Parliament for three years, and that would give him time to take severe measures to repress the Whigs. Many of them were brought to trial on fabricated charges of sedition and were found guilty by the jury. The mass of the people seemed willing to go any length in supporting the power of the king, and the divine right of kings and the sin of rebellion were the favorite topics in the pulpit. The Duke of York returned in triumph to London in 1682, once more took his seat at the council, and resumed the direction of naval affairs. His presence was calculated to increase the violence of the king's measures against the Whigs. In his administration of Scotland, the Duke of York had been distinguished for his severity. He had not only ordered the infliction of torture upon state prisoners, but had stood by to watch the sufferings of his unhappy victims. He was not likely, therefore, to urge moderate measures in England. The Test Act should have excluded him from taking any part in public affairs, but Charles could count enough upon the subserviency of the people to venture to infringe it. The discovery of a Whig plot known as the Rye House Plot gave the government a new excuse for violent measures. The Rye House Plot had been formed by a few desperate men whose object was to seize the persons of Charles II and the Duke of York. But Charles II resolved that the whole Whig party should share the blame. Virtuous and upright men, of whose guilt there was no legal proof, suffered death on the scaffold for it. From one illegal act, Charles II proceeded to another. Three years had passed since his last Parliament, and he issued no writs for a new one. Even amongst the Tories, murmurs began to be heard. Halifax, to whom the rejection of the Exclusion Bill was mainly due, remonstrated against the measures of the government of which he was a member, and won the bitter animosity of the Duke of York by advocating greater respect for the Constitution. The Duke of York, in these days of prosperity, did not forget the faithful services of Colonel Churchill. He was created a peer of Scotland with the title of Baron Churchill of Eymouth, and in November 1683 was appointed Colonel of the Royal Regiment of Dragoons, which was just being raised as the first regiment of its kind in England. The public had seen no cause to rate highly Churchill's merits and ridiculed his appointment as a piece of favoritism. One lampoon of the time says, Let's cut our meat with spoons. The sense is as good as that Churchill should be put to command the dragoons. In 1683, the Lady Anne, James, Duke of York's younger daughter, was married to Prince George of Denmark, and Lady Churchill was appointed her Lady of the Bedchamber. When Sarah Jennings, at the age of twelve, was received into the Duchess of York's household, she had soon become the object of the tender affection of the Lady Anne, who was three years younger. As time went on, 
their friendship ripened into greater intimacy. Anne was one of those who is made to be ruled by a more powerful mind. She was of an affectionate disposition, but of a slow and stubborn nature. She clung with desperate energy to any opinion which she had once imbibed, and showed the same tenacity in clinging to any person whom she had learnt to love. She was charmed by Sarah's lively disposition and submitted meekly to her imperious ways. Anne was delighted to have her friend as lady of her bedchamber, and daily learnt more and more to depend upon her. She was an affectionate wife, but Prince George was not a man to exercise influence over any one. He was dull and stupid and cared only for eating and drinking, and was as willing as his wife to be ruled by others. Lady Churchill used no arts to gain her influence. She was not one who could stoop to flatter even a princess, and she scolded and domineered over Anne with perfect freedom. Anne seemed only to wish to encourage her freedom. She writes to her, Let me beg of you not to call me your highness at every word, but to be as free with me as one friend ought to be with another, and you can never give me any greater proof of your friendship than in telling me your mind freely in all things, which I do beg you to do, and if ever it were in my power to serve you, nobody would be more ready than myself. At last Anne suggested that for the sake of greater freedom they should adopt new names, which should put them, apparently, on an equal footing. She called herself Mrs. Morley, and Lady Churchill adopted the name of Mrs. Freeman. In their private correspondence, Prince George became Mr. Morley, and Lord Churchill, Mr. Freeman. End of Section 2